If you did not open your Bibles already to 1 Peter chapter 2, please do so. And thank you, Joel, for reading the Scripture this morning. Reading the Scriptures for us in a text like this is compelling in and of itself. Especially that last section. And we're going to, in my heart of hearts, I want to move us quickly to this last section where we see the display of Christ's grace and mercy on display for us. We see it clearly. And that's really the grace of this text this morning. This is, this is the momentum. This, is which it's driving, this whole text is driving us towards what we see in Jesus Christ in these last few verses. But before we jump in, let me set the stage. In fact, we're going to jump back to verse 11 uh, and 12 to, to frame up this whole segment of the text, as well as to push us forward into the book of 1 Peter, all the way into chapter 3. And some would even say this covers uh, all the way to chapter 4 as well, or maybe even possibly the rest of the book. But as we begin, I just want to ask you a question. Have you ever been somewhere or walked into somewhere where you did not feel like you were in the right place? Maybe you showed up at a Boston Red Sox game and you're not a Red Sox fan. And worse yet, you're a Yankees fan wearing Yankees hat and shirt, sitting in the middle of the first base side section. Yeah, you're not going to feel at home or at place there. Or maybe in your rush at that baseball game, there's an emergency and you go running into a room to find relief only to greet someone of the opposite gender standing face to face with you, realizing you are in the wrong bathroom. You quickly realize you're in the wrong place. Or like happened to me several times in college, first day of class, you show up and finally the teacher walks in and says, hey, welcome to organic chemistry. I'm like, what? No, uh, Greek one maybe, Bible themes, organic chemistry, no. Or maybe you show up to an event or a wedding and you're either underdressed or way overdressed and you feel like you stick out like a sore thumb. We've all been there. We've all been in some kind of situation where we feel like we do not fit, like we do not belong. And, and Peter has been pushing us towards this idea that our new identity, the new character that we have in Christ, who we are, is actually making us more and more to feel like we are not at home here in this world, in this culture that's around us. And, and sometimes the, the, the world of the first century, the, the uh, language or the government or the, the ideals of the first century seems so far removed from us in our Christian experience as Americans. But I would, I would doubtless say that many of us in recent days have felt this tension more and more that, that even this country called the United States, we, we feel less and less at home here. As believers, there's a tension. There's a, at best, the culture that is around us as Christians, whether in the United States or around the world, at best, it is not friendly towards Christianity. At best. And at worst, in many places in the world, and even more and more so here in the United States, we're feeling that there is somewhat of a hostility towards Christianity and those who identify as Christ followers. 
We're feeling less and less comfortable in our culture. And so Peter is wanting to address this. He's wanting to point out that this is actually normal for us. In fact, if you look at your text in chapter 2, you go back and, and Peter lays out for us some amazing things in verse 9 and verse 10 about this new identity that we have in Christ. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people possessed by God or God's possession. We are a people that is called out to be separate from the culture and the world around us. In fact, this happens to us when we begin to follow Christ. We have no choice in the matter. This is what it means to follow Christ. A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's people. And he says that we have a very clear purpose in this world at the end of verse 9. Here is now your purpose as a chosen people, as a select group of individuals that are called out. Here is your purpose. Your purpose is this, that you will proclaim the excellencies or the virtues, or as some versions might say, the goodness of the one who has called you out of darkness and into light. Have you ever wondered what your purpose should be as a Christian? Have you ever wondered what your purpose in life should be? Here's a summary statement that covers everything about you and every time and any situation you're in. Your purpose is to proclaim the goodness and the excellencies of God in any situation you find yourself in. To live it out. And then verse 10. And this is what really begins to move us forward in this text. He, he says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. But what characterizes us now? We had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What an amazing thing. Once we did not know the kindness of God, once we did not experience His love, once we were not under that pouring out of His mercy on our lives, and at some point, God pours out His mercy into our hearts. By the loving kindness of this God, we became His people, we became His children. And the implication, the implication that's here that stands at the head of this text is this. We who have received God's mercy are now called to become instruments of mercy. We, upon whom God has poured out His wealth of grace and kindness and mercy to us, should be the ones who are pouring out God's mercy and kindness to others. And so, Peter says... Verse 11, Then, beloved, I urge you, as a result of this, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, those that don't fit in this culture any longer, there's some ways you need to act. There's some ways that you need to display, proclaim this excellency of Him who called you, the goodness of Him who has called you. There's a way that you should be pouring out mercy, using your lives as instruments of mercy on others. And I'm going I'm to walk you through that. So verse 11 turns the corner and he begins to help us see that in unique life situations and in unique relationships, we as Christians in the world and in our families and in the church are supposed to live and act in certain ways so that we will proclaim the excellencies of the goodness of God so all the world can see. Why? Because Christ is not present on this earth right now. 
in physical bodily form like he was in the first century. But who is? We are. We, the body of Christ, are here and present and we're called to pour out goodness and grace on those around us. You have received God's mercy. So here's, here's really the focus of our, of our text this morning, from verse 11 all the way to 25. And, and you've got to understand this. So as the people of God, as God's chosen people, we've already covered so far in the Gospel, you, you once were not a people, but now you are God's people. So as God's people, your good works proclaim the goodness and grace of God to an unbelieving world around us. You know, we, we talk about much that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and, and, and that's true. But sometimes we, we leave it there and we, and we don't realize that we are saved for a purpose. And the purpose that we were created for is to display the good works of God through us. And the audience that's looking on is not merely the audience that's in this room. It's not merely this congregation of brothers and sisters in Christ. It's the audience of the unbelieving world who actually is hostile at worst and not friendly at best to us and to Jesus. That is the audience for which we are to perform, but not for our glory, but for the glory of God himself. So we are called to live out our identity. Look at this. In verse 11, Peter writes, I urge you. That might seem a little weak to us. So maybe a paraphrase like this, I beg you. I beg you. As people who no longer fit in this culture, who are no longer at home in this culture, I beg you. Abstain from the desires of the flesh and pursue a life of good works. And I've just summarized these two verses this way. Your good works may turn the hearts of haters into lovers. Just let that sink in. You know, your good works that God has ordained for you to do, your, your good works may actually be the means that God uses to turn the hearts of haters of God and haters of Christianity into lovers of God, lovers of Christ. Man, what a joy. What a privilege. But, but look at this. There's, there's two sides to this. There's a negative side of, of living this out. There's, and there's a positive side. The negative side is this, that we're to avoid the passions of the flesh. Why? Because we're no longer at home in the, in the way that this world operates. We're no longer at home in the way that we used to live as unbelievers before Christ. These things, these passions of the flesh are things that no longer make sense to us. At least they shouldn't. These are the things that characterize the unregenerate life, the, the sinful desires, the sinful affections, the sinful loves that characterize the life before God poured out His mercy on us before He humbled us and opened our eyes to our sin, before we repented and turned away. And this is a big category. Avoid the passions of the flesh. Really, anything that, this covers anything that you would say, in the presence of God Himself, this, this would not fit. If it's all about me, if it's all about what I want, if it's all about just my satisfaction, my desire, this would not fit. So Peter says, avoid it. 
Avoid it. Don't let it be a part of your life. Cut it out. Stop it. But this isn't a, just a merely legalistic command. This is a command of grace and mercy. You have been transformed. You are a chosen people. You are God's people. And He's poured out His mercy and grace on you to do this. And then the positive side. Actively pursue a life of good. Actively pursue a life of good. And the focus of this is especially, notice this, especially among those who are unbelievers. Verse 12. We have the word, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. And of course, the, the word Gentiles here is referring in a symbolic way for those who are not in Christ. Those who are unbelievers, not merely a Jew or a Gentile divide, but it's the divide between we who are now God's chosen people, we who are true Israel, who are truly Adam's sons and descendants. These are the ones before whom, among whom, notice that word, among them, we should be living out our good works. See, the audience, again, is not simply us as believers. The audience is those who are opposed to us, those who are opposed to Christ. And this is especially important when what? When they speak against you as evildoers. When when they bring false accusations against us, when, when they maybe even in some cases bring true accusations against those who identify as Christians, accusations of hate and bigotry and abuse and immorality and a lack of compassion for the needy and the oppressed around us. We have fallen all of us, because we claim the name of Christ, we have fallen into a category that the unbelieving world in our country generally associates with many of these things. To our fault? No. Simply because we name the name of Christ and simply because in a political season the name Christianity and the name evangelical gets associated with a certain person or a certain attitude or a certain way of thinking or a certain way of speaking, which should not actually characterize us as Christians. So Peter says, look, through the divine inspiration, how do you combat false accusations? How do you combat an attitude or a, an emotion against Christians in general in this country that we are hateful or that we're bigots or that we're not loving people? or compassionate people, he says, be actively pursuing good works in your life in every way before these unbelievers so that when they bring these false accusations against you in your life, they know it's not true. And then here's the amazing point. Here's the amazing point. Here's the effect They will see your good deeds. They'll see them. And as they see them, their hearts might be turned to become lovers of God rather than haters of God. And here in this section begins somewhat of a contrast that runs all the way through where there are Unbelievers who are verbally 
hostile and opposed to Christians through what they say and how they speak. And the response of a Christian and the example that we see in Christ is not to retaliate and spew words and defenses back at them or even hurling scriptural statements back at them. No, the defense is the silent yet amazingly loud voice of the good works that characterize our lives. That's our defense. The transforming grace of God through our lives so that when they speak, they also see the display of God's grace and mercy through us. So many times we're so quick to shout back, to stand up, to picket, to riot, to defend. That's our natural human response. And Peter says, let them see. Let them see the grace of God on display through you. Now, I've been addressing mainly believers here this morning, so far. But the reality is there might be an unbeliever here, someone who does not claim, who does not identify as a Christian. And I would assume that the reason that you're even here this morning is is not because somebody won a debate with you over whether or not God exists, or whether or not the world was created in six days, or whether or not there's some fine theological point that you're concerned about, and they argued you here. I would assume that you're here this morning because you saw an experience from the person who invited you here or brought you here this morning. You saw in their life a measure of kindness and a measure of goodness that you had not seen anywhere else. This person extended mercy to you or kindness to you. They met a need in your life. Or maybe they just stopped and talked to you and acknowledged you and nobody else would and they just passed you by. Maybe they just said something helpful and encouraging. They helped you at work. And that's the reason you're here. Not because they're great arguers of truth or because they've memorized hundreds of verses or because they always wear the right kind of clothes or say the right things, but it's because they have shown you mercy and kindness personally. So Peter says the result is they're going to see your good behavior and glorify God. And what is he doing here? He's simply picking up the words of Jesus from Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and you glory your Father who is in heaven. Peter's not creating this just out of the blue. Peter's rooting his, his challenge, his exhortation to these believers directly in the words of Jesus Christ. So the result is that they will see your good behavior and glorify God. Here's a quote from a theologian that's helpful that Christians living, Christians living in an unbelieving society must avoid sinful ways of living and continually maintain exemplary patterns of life. Why? So that unbelievers will be saved and God glorified. There is no reason to doubt that such a strategy for evangelism will still work today. There's no reason to doubt this. 
This is inspired. God has said, this is how the unbelieving world is going to glorify me, is by seeing your light, by seeing your good works. And Peter picks it up and says, this is the most powerful apologetic you can give to an unbelieving world, is living a life of good works. What a strategy for evangelism today. So immediately we ask the question, am I actively warring against sin in my life? Just putting on a facade of loving others? Or am I pursuing truly good works and love to those around me? Many times we speak of bridges and barriers to the gospel and the mission endeavor. Barriers to the gospel are things that keep people from hearing about the goodness and the grace of Jesus Christ as we speak to them. So it is culturally informed, but here it's very clear that the greatest barrier to the gospel, to people seeing and hearing the gospel, is sin in our lives. Where we're living in the ways of the old way of life before Christ, that's the greatest barrier to the gospel, the greatest bridge to the gospel to them seeing and hearing and for the good news of Jesus Christ to travel over that into their mind and in their heart, the greatest bridge is good works, good behavior in all aspects of life. So, your good works may be the means that God uses to turn the hearts of haters into lovers. What an amazing joy. The next section in verses 13 to 17. And now we feel like he's really starting to meddle with our lives. Because he says in verse 13, Therefore be subject or submit or obey for the Lord's sake to every human institution. It's very interesting to see the extent of this command. Right? What does he say? Obey, submit to every human institution whether it's to the Emperor Supreme or to the governors that he sends out to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. And, and the word institution has the, is really the, the word, the, this created entity, which means that, that humans have actually thought this up. We, as we are created in the image of God, have created institutions like government or like corporations and how they're run, to create order and to create, create uh, productivity and to punish the evil things and to honor the good things in this life and in this world. And so Peter roots this directly in the created order. See, God has made us in his image and he has given us a creation mandate to have dominion over the creation, which also means to arrange things in an orderly fashion. And we have done that through government and through structures of authority in our world. And Peter says, obey them. Be subject to them. All of them. I don't think we have such a high view of government as maybe Peter did. So one pastor in Washington, D.C. says this, almost any government is better than no government. Would you like to live in an anarchist society? where everyone does what is right in their own eyes, where everyone does what they want to do, with no guards, no bounds, no common grace. So another pastor says, this, says it like this, government is a gift of God's common grace. Why? Because we're sinful beings. So lack of human authority combined with a human tendency to sin is never a recipe for peace or prosperity. 
See, in a fallen, sinful world, government is actually a common grace for all humanity. And the statement is true. Almost any government is better than no government. Do we have that view? Peter presses us to understand that as Christians, we are called to obey government and any civil institution that is established over us. Why? Because it is the will of God. Look at verse 13. Actually, verse 15. Many of you asked, what's the will of God? Teenagers, college students, adults. What's the will of God for my life? Well, here's one of those clear statements. This is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And what is the doing good he's talking about? The doing good is actually submitting and obeying your life to the authority of the government and the civil institutions that are over you. This is how he defines doing good. There's two reasons. Like I said, God's will. And secondly, as you do this, to silence the foolishness of ignorant people. Those who are opposed to Christianity. Those who are opposed to God. Those critics. Why? Because what do they say about Christians? You know, what's this uninformed understanding of Christianity in the first century? That they're actually trying to undermine the existing government. They're actually trying to create tension and and subvert it and destroy it. That wasn't the Christians' understanding of government. That wasn't what they were trying to do. Did they, complain, did they uh, uh, proclaim Jesus Christ as the sovereign Lord over all people? Yes. Yes. But they also were called to submit their lives to Caesar, to the emperor, to the rulers that God has placed over them from a human perspective. Why? Because we know... And they know that all rulers are put into place by the sovereign God. If we don't view that, if we don't understand that God is in control over all things, all the time, even when it doesn't look like it, like we learned from Daniel, if we don't realize that God is sovereignly placing rulers in places of power and authority, especially over nations, especially in government positions, if we don't understand that, then, then yeah, we will have no hope. And isn't that what Peter's talking about? Having hope in, in difficult times and trials and when we... We are opposed for our faith. What's at stake, he says? What's at stake if we as Christians do not willingly and ethically support and participate in helping the government accomplish what it was called to do? What happens? What's at stake if we as Christians actually actively try to undermine decent governments? We might not agree with everything. We might not agree with all the policies of the lawmakers or those that are in positions of power. But for us to actively oppose them and undermine their authority, what's at stake? The glory of God. Why? Because He has commanded us to submit to them. So the question is this. Are we submitting properly? Are we participating properly in the government that God has given us? Are we helping and participating in this government so that it will properly punish evil and honor those who do good? These who are foolish and ignorant is not meant, is not meant to simply belittle unbelievers. That's not, that's not the point. These, these words are full of theological meaning. They, they do not understand the grace of God. They do not understand what life under God's ways mean. They, they don't understand Christianity. They don't understand the mercy and the grace of God. They don't understand what Jesus Christ came to do. 
They assume and they continue to live out their lives from a sinful perspective, a perspective and a way of life apart from God. In fact, they are the ones who probably are the ones seeking to undermine and destroy governments and overthrow governments. And as Christians, we should have no part in what is characteristic of unbelievers. There's a concluding statement. And it's set up in a way that helps us understand how we do this as believers. In verse 17. We're supposed to live as people that are free, not using our freedom as a cover-up for our evil, but verse 17, we are therefore supposed to live as slaves or servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. And as you can visualize this, visualize this in your mind, you have, it starts out, honor everyone. This is a big category. Overarching category. Why do we honor everyone? Regardless of their gender, regardless of their race, regardless of their nationality. Honor everyone. Why? Because every human being is created in the image of God and is deserving of honor. We should never disparage or put down or or oppress any person or any people group or any individual simply based upon the fact that they're not like us in some way. No, we're called to honor everyone. How do we we know how to do that? How do we learn how to do that? Well, then it kind of tapers down to love the brotherhood. Love the family of God. How do you know how to love those outside of the church? Well, it starts by loving properly those that are in the church. In some ways, we merely tolerate those who are outside the church, but in the church, we are called to love. Love them. And how do we do that? Well, we have a fear of our true sovereign. It gets even more narrow, more precise. He is our king. He is our God. He is truly the only one that we fear. So we submit our lives to Him. We obey Him in everything. And so we obey Him in everything. We love the brotherhood and we honor everyone. And the implication is this. Therefore, if you do all these things, here's the conclusion. You're going to honor the king. You're going to honor the emperor. Not because you agree with him in everything. Not because you think that he has the best policies. Not because he's the most morally perfect individual you've ever met. But because simply by honoring the king, the emperor, the government, the rulers over you, the boss, you are reflecting that you love your God and you fear your God supremely. And as much as that government, as much as that ruler calls you to things that are not sinful, that are not against faith in Christ, that are not against the ways that we have been taught in Scripture to live our lives, as much as that ruler leads you and commands you to obey, we must. For the glory of God is at stake. This has been true for Christians throughout ages. So much so that they've tried to capture it in confessions of faith. Because they understand the link between how we live in this life, just generally doing good works as well as submitting ourselves to the government. So even this week, um, Pastor Steve and I are working through some of our documents and our, our own statement of faith and trying to sharpen this and make it better. And, and so one that we were reading is it's called the Baptist Faith and Message. And here's the section that they wrote that all Christians are under obligation to seek to make the will of Christ supreme in our lives and in human society. Means and methods used for the improvement of society and the establishment of righteousness among men can be truly and permanently helpful only when they are rooted in the regeneration of the individual by the saving grace of God in Jesus Christ. 
In the spirit of Christ, therefore, Christians should oppose racism and every form of greed and selfishness and vice and all forms of sexual immorality, including adultery and homosexuality and pornography. And we should work to provide for the orphan, the needy, the abused, the aged, the helpless, and the sick. We should speak on behalf of the unborn and contend for the sanctity of all human life from conception to natural death. And every Christian should seek to bring industry and government and society as a whole under the sway of the principles of righteousness, truth, and brotherly love. In order to promote these ends, Christians should be ready to work with all men of goodwill in any cause, always being careful to act in the spirit of love without compromising their loyalty to Christ and His truth. What a powerful statement. See, this is what, this is what Christians have believed throughout the centuries. This is not new. This is not novel. But I fear that as Americans, sometimes we've steered away from this and we've not understood our role in society as instruments of mercy and instruments of good works and instruments of God's grace to turn people back to righteousness and back to God. How? Not by angry rants on Facebook, not by angry videos, not by political posts, by what? But by our active pursuit of good works among unbelievers and in our larger society. And finally, these last seven verses, as we read them, we'll simply have to summarize. But here, Peter takes for us the truth. that we are actually supposed to live like servants. In fact, these words to a servant become the paradigm for all of the Christians of all time. Obviously, slavery is something that we as Americans have an understanding of in our cultural context, but here, there are different kinds, and here the servants, probably household servants, some had good masters, some had bad It's a totally different circumstance and environment than we would experience today. However, if the instructions here are followed in this entire section and the sections to come, we see clearly that, that God, through His Word, is seeking to, in the proper way, undermine these unjust social institutions. And how? He's going to undermine them by, by his grace. By creating a new humanity. By, by showing people what, it's, what life is supposed to be like in this world. So he says to servants, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. And it's right there that we, we hit attention. What? We're supposed to obey and submit. We're supposed to respect not only the good and the gentle, but also the unjust or the perverse. Those who actually are, are actively opposing you as a Christian. And he's addressing Christian servants, Christian household servants. 
And this becomes our paradigm of how we respond to unjust suffering in this life. Verse 19, so he says this, When you respond this way to unjust masters, unjust people, verse 19, this is a gracious thing. This is a grace thing. Why? When mindful of God or conscientious of God, mindful that you have to fear God above all men, a person endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. This is a gracious thing. Verse 20, for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? You know, the, the, the question is, we expect to suffer when we do what's wrong. This is a general expectation. But if when you do good and suffer for it, which shouldn't happen, if you treat your unjust master or the person who is over you, treating you unfairly and crushing your spirit and condemning you because you're a Christian, just because you're a Christian and just because you're doing what's good, if you, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. I can say it this way. If we actually understand this, that our endurance through unjust suffering is a display of God's grace, if we understand that, here's how this takes place. If we endure unjust suffering, God pours out his grace on us to have the strength to do that, to have the strength to endure. And this unjust oppressor can't help but see your response. And as a result, as he or she is seeing your response, which is empowered by God's grace, and they're seeing your hope, and they're seeing your joy, even in circumstances that they're creating that are unjust, they can't help but see the transforming grace of God on display in your life. So that's why Peter can say, this whole thing, this whole experience is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And then he explains it even further. Verse 21. For to this you have been called. To what have you been called? To do good? Definitely. To suffer for doing good? Most likely. You have been called to this. To do good and to suffer for it. Why? Because Christ also suffered for you. His whole life was about good. Everything he did was good. He never did anything evil. Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, an example so that you might follow in his steps. And what are his steps? To live a life that is actively pursuing good works in every aspect. Anybody you meet, anybody you encounter, the flavor that they should walk away from from your life, the smell, the aroma of your life should be one of grace and kindness. Good works. Verse 
Verse 22, so he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Notice, again, notice the words. When he suffered, he didn't deceive with his mouth. He didn't speak. He didn't try to get out of it. He didn't commit sin. When he was reviled, he did not revile with his mouth again. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He didn't spew threats back. But, verse 23, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. See, the, the silence of the good works of Christ in his life and in his suffering. He's trusting the one who judges justly. While suffering unjustly, he's trusting the one who judges justly. That's our hope. We're called to endure through unjust suffering, to do good works and to suffer for it. This is the example Christ leaves us. And as we suffer for doing good, we're called to trust the one, God, the only one who judges justly knowing that He will vindicate. He will declare what is good and right. Verse 24. And as He did that, as He endured silently, continuing to trust the Father in this plan of a redemption that they have designed, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And here's the, here's the most amazing and ultimate good work of all history. By His wounds, you have been healed. By His wounds, you have been healed. This is the essence of the good work that Jesus did in His life and death. He allowed Himself to suffer unjustly at our hands. Right? Put ourselves here in the scene. Why is he suffering? He's suffering because of our injustice. He's suffering because of our unrighteousness. He's suffering because we put him on the cross. Because of our sin. And he quietly endures and suffers so that we can be healed. For you are straying like sheep. You're wandering your own way. You were doing your own thing. You were doing whatever it is you wanted to do in your flesh, the fleshly desires. And He, the bishop, the shepherd, the overseer of your souls, has called you back and you've returned. And He's taken you back. Is this how we respond to people that oppose us? Is this how we respond to people that hate us? Is this how we respond to people that cause suffering in our lives where we're so quick to forgive and receive if they will simply return and come? If they'll see the grace of God on display and they'll come back and they'll ask for forgiveness and they'll seek our face. Do we, do we treat them this way? See, here's the implication. When Christ did all this good and suffered for it, God, the Spirit, opened our eyes to see And we responded. And as such, He calls us to follow in His footsteps to do good and to suffer for it. And here's the redemptive effect. No, our suffering is not like Christ in any way. 
except it identifies with him and his suffering and we're empowered by him and his suffering to live new lives or good works so others might see. But here's the redemptive effect. As you live your life in such a way that reflects Christ, could it be that people would actually say about you, about me, they would look at us like they looked at Christ and say, surely this must be a child of God. Surely this must be what grace looks like. Truly, this is the gospel on display. Your good works proclaim the goodness and grace of God. So let me conclude with these questions. And I'll ask the musicians to come and they can play for a few moments while you're just meditating through these. And I would encourage you to maybe turn some of your answers and thoughts into prayer as simply as they pray, and then Ethan will lead us in a few songs of response. And here's the question. Are you actively killing sin in your life? Are you actively abstaining from the desires of the flesh? And are you actively pursuing a life of good works, especially among unbelievers? That's what we're called to. And and don't be surprised when suffering comes. Don't be surprised when the world hates us. But the reality is that some who see, God has chosen that some who see will turn and become lovers of him and glorify him when he returns. God's glory is at stake.